0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. Do you ever wonder at our species' interest in spooky stories, horror films, and even violent video games that take place in theaters of war? How we go to safe and cozy spaces, movie theaters, our own living rooms, to explore life at these extremes. There's something similar going on with how we talk about human history, safely, cozily, from the supposedly stable structures of modern society. Most of us generally understand the broad strokes of our species' deep past, along with more recent histories of exploration, but how many of us as individuals are really up for taking on similar challenges ourselves? Our ancestors might have up and moved, but now, surrounded by small comforts like our digital devices, our entertainment stations, and the glory of indoor plumbing, why on earth would we ever put ourselves through anything more extreme for the long term? Why would we ever take the risk if we didn't have to? Hominid species started expanding out of Africa around two million years ago. That's when Homo erectus lived up to its name, standing upright and looking about and setting out for the horizon. Hominid groupings like the Denisovans and Neanderthals also spread out millions of years ago. Homo sapiens took a little longer to set out, maybe 300,000 years at the outside. We have some evidence, for instance, of Homo sapiens making it to Greece and Israel after a major migration around 125,000 years ago, but not with much luck. Those early human populations, for whatever reason, seem to have been outcompeted by local Neanderthals. That wave of human migration tapered off around 80,000 years ago and even if it involved early humans getting as far as, say, China or maybe even North America, we've yet to find genomic traces of our presence in those eras. And genomic data is important because even if we can find paintings and tools and other signs that someone was there, that doesn't guarantee it was us. Plenty of other hominids were wandering around for hundreds of thousands of years. There's also one model that suggests a migration out of East Africa only some 70 to 50,000 years ago, spreading along the coast of India, Southeast Asia, and Oceania, with some groups arriving in Australia around 65 to 50,000 years ago. Only at that point did we start to really outdo Homo erectus with our range across the world. That said, within Africa, early modern humans seem to have done much better, so who knows? Maybe we were always better off sticking closer to home, right? Either way, in southern Africa, ancestors of the modern Khoisan people are anywhere from 150,000 to 260,000 years old. In the Sahara, signs of our presence go back some 130,000 years, although there we would have been coexisting with other archaic human species. It can be difficult, from forensic sites alone, to differentiate between the homes of Homo sapiens and the homes of other hominids along the way. But generally, across Europe, current consensus suggests that it wasn't until around 40,000 years ago that modern humans started spreading out and surviving in that world, mingling and interbreeding with other populations already settled in spaces there. Only then were we the species breeding other hominid species out. One other major deep-time migration happened in the wake of the last glacial maximum. First, we had the Ice Age itself, around 20,000 years ago. That massive environmental change drove our species in the northern hemisphere to take shelter and transform its way of life. It also created new land bridges, inviting transition to the Americas for those populations hardy enough to make the journey. As for the rest of us though, well, we kinda waited for the world to warm up. As glaciers receded, the period known as the Holocene began, around 12,000 years ago, and that's when our species really got going, spreading out to populate large territories and rapidly developing our ability to work the land. That's when we transitioned from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic, and then the Bronze Age, with the appearance of written historical record around 40,000 years ago in China and the Near East. These last massive migrations also brought us most of the distinct ethnic language groups that shape our modern world. The stage was finally set, after tens of thousands of years of human roaming, for some humans to start digging in deeply into specific spaces and carving out a more territorial sense of home. Are you getting tired just thinking about all those deep time transitions? It can be pretty impressive and exhausting to think about how far our species has come. But the most important part of all that our species has done before is what it tells us about what our species can do, and may well very soon have to do again. After all, it's that mental flip that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're moving through different landscapes in the world of mobility rights and displaced people, our past migrations, our present crises, and the future of movement we deserve. As much fun as it can be to think about deep time for our species, we're also pretty self-centered critters, and what our ancient ancestors did with respect to wandering the world might not seem anywhere near as impressive as what our ancestors in more recent centuries overcame. However, even then, we sometimes forget how fluid human history can be, which is why books like 2021's The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengrow resonated so well for so many. In it, the authors rethink the stories that were especially told about human nature in the late Renaissance and early Enlightenment, and they offer different ways of reading the wealth of messy evidence we have about early human populations and the ways that they organized themselves. The book is part forensic archaeology, part historiography, and part invitation to play to rethink ourselves less as a rigid species marching in one direction that we call progress, and more as a series of populations that tried out different ways of being and didn't always prefer the more rigid structures that many of our political science and history texts consider marks of superior society. And yet, such work really shouldn't come as surprising because our histories have always been filled with reminders of fluid migration and its outcomes, some good, some not so great. Ancient civilizations in China, the Americas, Europe, India, and the Middle East all have their stories of open trade routes and roadways, not just bringing new products to different lands, but also a thriving cross-pollination of human ideas. Movement also had an important moral and legal character to it, as early as in ancient Greece, when Delphic priests established mobility rights as one of the four freedoms that differentiated the state of a freeman from that of a slave. The local community was also pretty pragmatic about the arrival of outsiders. It didn't see them as citizens exactly, and therefore it felt no obligation to tend to their well-being. If new arrivals, though, wanted to support the region's businesses, pay taxes, enlist in local armies, well great, more fodder for state industry. That notion of slavery though is one that tends to consume our understanding of the past far more than related notions of freedom of movement. We remember for instance that many of our ancestors were serfs, tied for life to the land of their birth and compelled to serve their feudal lords. We remember that part and sometimes forget that in other ways those same serfs were freer than us because they had more idle time around seasonal labor on the land and in some places in Europe were even protected under the right to roam to wander across feudal lands so long as they weren't poaching their lord's game in the process. And yet it is very much true that on the whole, serfdom and slavery were wretchedly constricting affairs. Under Roman Emperor Constantine, serfs were forbidden to leave their work sites and obey their masters always, When Rome introduced the world's first quote-unquote passport, it wasn't quite the same as the ones we have today. Its purpose, in a world where people were easily captured and sold into slavery, was to request safe passage for its bearer. Please don't sell this human being, Rome was essentially saying. For now, we'd kind of like them to continue to be free. The pursuit of wealth and the treatment of human beings as cogs in the machine of wealth accumulation had a lot to do with the establishment of rigid borders across Europe in the Renaissance, when serfdom was replaced with a desire to acquire tax-paying, army-filling bodies to increase government power. In the first series of this season two, On petro-nationalism, I discussed this very phenomenon under a slightly different lens. The idea of the state as a long-standing corporate enterprise and the idea that all of Europe's colonial missions, long before the formation of traditional companies, bear a similar character. Now we're coming full circle with the understanding that in this state corporate model, cultural distinctions only really served to mark out one state's workforce from another's and to establish the terms by which one kingdom might claim entitlement to a given constituency. And yet these kingdoms tended to pursue such ends not so much by welcoming outsiders to increase the fold, as by driving people out, creating rigid demographics and a sense of belonging by displacing any population that could be seen as a risk to the central authority of any given nation-state. Jewish people were, of course, easy scapegoats. And so too were Protestants. And all the while, European countries were also plenty busy driving other mass migrations through the slave trade, the forced displacement of millions of West Africans into brutal lives in the Americas. Islamic countries had definitely gotten a head start over Christian countries with this work, having enslaved Africans since around 650 AD, but the European version of this slave drive was different, European countries were displacing Africans from their homes to lands where the Europeans were also displacing local indigenous groups in North America and in South America, and they were using one displaced population to do the backbreaking labour of building up the land they'd taken by killing off another. Amid all this bleakness though, there are some fascinating divisions in attitude that merit our consideration. Again, as European countries were centrally interested in growing their wealth and holdings, they were eager to settle these foreign shores, but also had remarkably different ideas about who would be best to send over. Britain, for instance, was perfectly fine shipping off its convicts and dissenters to Australia, a forced migration where deposited citizens would then be compelled to serve Britain in settling these new lands. This is quite different from how Spain went about its own colonization, especially of South America. Only Spanish citizens of the highest repute were allowed to make a fortune in those lands of plenty. Anyone entering a Spanish colony had to prove that they were, quote, neither Jews, nor Moors, nor children of such, nor sons or grandsons of any that have been punished, condemned, or burnt as heretics or for heretical crimes, end quote. quite seriously. From 1607 on, there was a death penalty in place for anyone trying to ship illegal passengers to the Indies, and anyone found to have gone illegally would be stripped of property, made to pay for the voyage back, and excommunicated on arrival. One way or another, though, all these European countries started to converge on the importance of passports by the end of the 18th century, How else would the rest of the nations on that continent know to whom any one citizen, and all the potential economic value they carried in their person, truly belonged? Ironically though, these passports also spoke to a countervailing pressure among many educated European citizens to return the right of movement to human beings. As the world opened up just as in ancient times, so too did the world of ideas, and a great deal of excitement followed the idea of free trade and a more emancipated market economy. As such, following the intense waves of colonization came an era of more relaxed borders, especially as people started to panic in the early 1800s about overpopulation among the lower classes. If those filthy people wanted to leave and try their luck somewhere else, why not let them? The only trouble was all those colonies were now gaining their own sense of nationhood and manifesting similar with their own ideas of borders and who did or did not belong within them. Nationalism started to bring with it grand narratives of racial purity, both in the new world and the old, and it also started to bring about its political counterpoint, in the rise of anarchist movements pushing back on state restrictions on basic human liberty. In the next episode, we'll talk more about how all of this mess solidified especially in the wake of World War I into the system that we so often take for granted today. But first, I wanted us to hold in tension not just recent human history, but also the deeper human histories of migration that lie behind it. When taken together, not just over our last few hundred years but also over our last few tens of thousands of years, the overarching through-line for our species has been one of growth through mobility. There has been a distinct strength and resilience to our capacity to adjust to changing contexts over time. As I noted in the previous episode, environmental change may well be compelling us to change again but in so doing, it might just be calling upon us to do something not so unusual to our species after all. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist, Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.